my name is Nick Kimmel. I was in the United States Marine Corps as a combat engineer. And uh, in 2011, I jumped on a 40-pound IED and lost both my legs above the knee and my left arm above the elbow. I actually grew up playing golf in the Pacific Northwest. Got pretty good. Didn't compete very much, just played with friends mostly. And then after my recovery, I got asked if I wanted to try and play out here in California and had pretty much zero interest in it until 2016. Another amputee buddy of mine who was on the Simpson Cup team last year, uh, Jesse Williamson, introduced me to Sean Whitmore and the Encore Foundation. And after that, I pretty much got rolled into the game again and pretty much do nothing but golf nowadays. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Downrange Podcast. I'm Cody. Our guest for today is Nick Kimmel. Nick grew up in the great state of Washington, did everything all young kids do who grow up in the Pacific Northwest, hunting, fishing, riding dirt bikes, absolutely loved the outdoors. So when time came to figure out what he wanted to do after high school, him and his buddies decided to join the Marine Corps. Nick enlisted in 2008, completed his first deployment in 2009-2010, then on his second deployment in southern Afghanistan in December 2011, Nick jumped off a forklift and landed on 40 pounds of homemade explosives. Luckily for him, only a third of it detonated, but it still instantly took off both his legs above the knee, and he lost his left arm above the elbow. After months and months of rehab, multiple surgeries, work trying to get his prosthetics dialed in, he finally turned back to something that he hadn't enjoyed since he was a young kid, and that's golf. Nick now plays golf basically full-time, and he does it with only one limb left, as his Instagram handle is. He's an absolute inspiration that I was lucky enough to meet last year when I went up to the creek for the Simpsons Cup. This year, Nick is also representing the United States team at the 2022 Simpsons Cup, played at Baltistral Country Club next week. Both Tron and myself will be there all week, taking part in all the festivities, wishing both the U.S. and the team from Great Britain nothing but success. Because at the end of the day, it's not really about who wins or who loses. It's about what they do to motivate others around them. This podcast and every other podcast for the rest of the year is sponsored by Mr. Ma Golf. You've heard me talk about Mr. Ma Golf, what Matt and Mason have created, but I want to direct you to their website now because they have a ton of new hats, t-shirts, polos, bucket hats, as well as some cool backpacks that are there. But more specifically, Matt and Mason, talking to Nick, who is one of their sponsored athletes, decided to come up with a really cool new item. So Mason, with the help of Nick, decided to design a hoodie specific for the adaptive golfer. But the one-arm hoodie is available now at mrmagolf.com. They'll be shipping out in November. And every time you wear it, 
you can be a symbol for all the people out there who are adaptive. Please check them out at their website, www.mrmagolf.com. And be sure to follow them on Instagram for all the latest updates on what they're up to, new clothes that they have coming out, as well as a lot of content next week up at the Simpsons Cup following the players that they sponsor. So thank you once again to Mason and Matt. Here's Nick. This is his story. Enjoy. It's a lot. A lot to unpack. I remember I've known you now for a little over a year. And every time I'm uh, around you, first of all, I'm amazed. And I think we'll, we'll unpack that part of it about you. But second of all, uh, your background story of, number one, being a kid from the Pacific Northwest. You kind of are, are crunchy just like the rest of them all. But you live the, this amazing low-cal beach bum life now, which I absolutely love. I'm envious of. And I wish I could wake up and look at that beautiful beach every morning. What was it like growing up? You said you played a little bit of golf, but what was Nick the Kid like? Uh, Big time into sports for sure. Golf and baseball. Baseball was a bigger focus as far as competitively. Played on some travel ball teams. But every summer since I was maybe six years old, I used to go to Idaho and... uh, spent a couple weeks or a month up there with my grandparents and they're the ones who kind of taught me how to golf they had a cabin in mccall idaho on a golf course and that's where i learned to golf and so every summer i would golf after baseball season was over and then start all over again the downside of being in the northwest is you know for spring sports and summer sports our season is not that long right so if you want to really practice you got to do it indoors and as a kid i wasn't really into being indoors so in the winter I was doing winter sports, snowmobiling, snowboarding. Yeah. All right. So where are you? you grew up in, was it Oregon or Washington? Washington, Moses Lake, Washington. It's on okay. the eastern side of the state. So a big snowmobile, yeah. which is where you probably get like your extreme sports side of the personality from. Yeah, that and dirt bikes, dirt bikes and snowmobiles and snowboarding. and That was pretty much it. And then as far as team sports goes, pretty much strictly baseball. Did tinkering around with all those small engines, did it make you a, a handy person in general? Oh, yeah. that And then that grew once I got into high school. I got into welding and fabricating and building, you know, rock collars and sand trucks with my buddies in the shop at school. And I still do that, too. Now I have a, a race truck that I'll race out here in the desert every once in a while. When did you start thinking about the military? Not until late in my senior year, because it was uh, like being from a smaller middle class family. There wasn't a way for me to afford like a full four year university. And I had a couple opportunities to play baseball at some schools out of high school, but nothing, not a full ride by any means. And several of my buddies that I hung around with all the time. We're all joining the Marine Corps, and one of them or a couple of them convinced me to talk to the recruiter, and what he sound, said sounded good, and 
kind of rolled with it. <laughs> so you knew you wanted to be a, an engineer. Yeah, for sure. Something mechanical. Yeah. If I didn't join the military, I was looking at, you know, I wanted to go into school for mechanical engineering or drafting along those lines. And I could still go that route, but now I've fallen more into patient advocacy and, and golf. Really. I am lucky enough to be on an athletics call, a uh, sponsorship from, a my prosthetic company and, uh, another clothing company that's, uh, up and coming they'll be out there in baldestrol too it's a uh, mr ma golf so i'm excited to meet mason matt two great human beings so when you enlisted did you know what you were getting yourself into was there any other marines in your in your family friends or were you guys all kind of going in together not really understanding what this process is going to be like and just kind of throwing it up for for the hopes that everything works out I had a couple family members in the military. My dad, obviously, my grandparents, which I never met any of them. They all passed before I was born. But my, both my grandpas were in Korea, and then uh, my uncle was in the Navy. But uh, he spent most of his time in San Diego, which I fell right into that too because now I'm here in San Diego. <laughs> but yeah, it was mostly just going in it with a blank slate. I did. You know, because I knew it was a shock to my parents that I was joining the military in general, I kind of went the next lowest level to infantry. So I, that's why I became a combat engineer, knowing that I would be with the infantry and hopefully I could slide it off under the radar to my parents so they weren't as worried. That's right. So what year is this? That I joined? Yeah. 2008. All right. So everything 2008, if people can remember back that far, but really the height of everything going on in Iraq. Mm -hmm. We had a massive surge going on. We've been told multiple times by this point that Al-Qaeda in Iraq is about to be done. Afghanistan was kind of on the back burner, something that was there, but nobody ever really thought of. And then... Right. We were still there at the same time. The absolutely. Same time we were in Iraq. I served with several guys that were in in Afghanistan in 07, 08, and, and, and we didn't... Most of the population didn't even realize we were still there right so you're a young uh a young man volunteering to go to the marine corps you knew you're going to be a combat engineer and ultimately you knew that eventually you're going to go to war hopefully soon that was my outlook like i didn't especially as engine engineer once i got in and learned you know the basic ropes like there's not much an engineer can do in a, in a garrison unit, in a stateside unit. So we can't even do very much training because you can't go blow a whole bunch of stuff up in very many places in the country. Right. Uh, maybe 29 Palms. Most, most bases have like limits on how much demo you can use. Yep. So we didn't get the most accurate training until we actually got into country. If you're going to uh, describe it, and I know you do this a lot, but if you're going to give like a, a brief overview of what a combat en engineer in the Marine Corps actually does, what would it be? Outside of just, we blow shit up. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, a lot of engineers will call themselves like jack of all trades. They kind of have us doing a bunch of stuff. We can do anything from vertical construction to horizontal construction, so like building roads. And then we also do... Uh, expedient bridges and permanent bridges and then we're all heavily involved in like route clearance 
and breaching with the demolitions. So a big part of our training was how to use a metal detector and how to be able to identify all the different sounds and things you'll come across. What do you think of, uh, of your engineering training once you got in? The tools part of it was easy for me because growing up with it, my dad was in construction my whole life. So I already knew a lot of how to use any tool that we would come across. Um, obviously, no kid messes around with a metal detector unless they live somewhere <laughs> on the beach looking for jewelry. Right. Um, which is a little different the way we do it. But I enjoyed it. I, I, I if Obviously, if I didn't get blown up, I was in it for 20. I was looking at 20 or more after my first enlistment and I, I didn't have like i said i didn't think it was the military in general is more of a mind challenge than it is a physical challenge there's things that you have to be fit for but you don't have to be a olympic athlete to succeed in the military right i completely agree it's definitely more of a uh, everything's a mental challenge when it comes down to it whether it's uh getting along with your you know your team your squad your platoon being a part of the large organization or, or trying to fix complex problems that are put in front of you. Because at the end of the day, if you have one Marine, you only have one Marine, but if you got a, a whole platoon or a company, you can, you can fuck whatever you want up. So right. I know how you guys roll, but was boot camp and everything what you thought it was going to be. I'm sure you watched a ton of movies leading up to it. You thought you were going to be uh, not, not quite Gomer pile out there, but but the, the right. hard Marine that everybody envisions themselves as. And as I, right as I was joining, as when they came out with that documentary, it was like uh, ears open, eyeballs click or something like that. <laughs> and so that was like a live documentary of a lot of stuff that happens in modern day boot camp. So I kind of had a idea what I was going into. I really didn't think it was hard at all. I think that's because you know, playing sports and doing all those things I did as a kid. I had already a foundation of what it meant to like work on a team. Even if you weren't in every play, you can still be involved in, in every situation. And so I was already kind of in a good mindset to know how to work as a team. And so any challenges that came across me in boot camp, I, as long as you work together, it's a lot easier. Like I said, I didn't think boot camp was that tough. Any uh, funny moments that, that you remember? From boot camp, dang, I got got been blown up a few times, but I don't know if my memory is that good. There always seems to be something, man. Like boot is such a melting pot of everybody, you know. Obviously, from all walks of life in America, and it's one of those. It creates a weird little micro culture of what I think a lot of people envision America really being. But when you get a lot of people from all all different backgrounds, whether that's race income levels, you name it. It's always interesting to see how it pans out. I think I saw more of that once I got out of boot camp and moved to like a school and infantry school, or even just early on my time in the fleet Marine Corps. It's, I think the funniest parts is just other characters you said you come across. Like, and, it's, and since I joined during the surge, you know, so there's obviously, they always talk about guys possibly falling through the cracks and maybe they shouldn't have quite made it. I'll never forget this redhead ginger kid we had in my first platoon that the squad leaders would literally have to remind this kid to breathe. Like he'd stand there and like hold his breath and lock up and be paying attention to nothing. Or someone would call his name and he's looking around like, who is God talking to? <laughs> there always seems to I'm be not, some. 
And then I, he didn't deploy with us, so I'm I'm really not sure whatever happened to him. I think they they kind of shuffled him from billeted areas that they can kind of pawn off the guys they don't want in you know, armory or the chow hall or gate guard or something like that. Like he, because everyone knew it, it was like, bro, you're someone who definitely slipped through the cracks. Like <laughs> your recruiter is better be getting a bronze star for this because he got in numbers that he shouldn't have got in. Yeah. So when you when you finally head off to the fleet, you get done with your training. Where'd you uh, Where'd you end up being stationed at? Uh, Okinawa, Japan. Man, you guys, yes. yeah, incredible. Well, a culture shock. Yeah, definitely. And as a young marine, there's a lot of like strict rules you have to follow. You don't get the freedom like you do in the the U.S. It's but it, it almost builds a better bond i think because in the u.s even today if you're in the military and you live off base or you get an apartment off base with your friends it's literally like a nine to five job or a five to nine job however you want to say it whereas when you're overseas you go to work with the same people and you get off work and you are billeted with the same people and then you go out in town to drink or party and that's the same exact people at the same exact bar so you'd never escape your unit not that you need to escape them, but I think because you're always around the same guys for every activity of all spectrums of life, you build a lot stronger bond. And then because you're in a foreign country, obviously they're a little bit more, you know, nitpicky about uh, rules and regulations. I think being over there is very old school. It's almost like being in, you know, in late Vietnam era as far as how they fix problems. You know, so I, you know, everyone talks about how hazing is such a problem these days and obviously it is but there's certain traditions that you want to call them hazing that that have phased out in the u.s they're still going strong overseas you trust me once i became a squad leader for sure this is and if if i would have done this in the states i probably would have got reprimanded i think that same marine i talked about before left his rifle sitting somewhere when we were in the field and uh that's a huge no-no in the marine corps especially so get your rifle snatched up. And I used to take my guys' rifles that were unattended. And as we're engineers, right, so I'd take them, take them apart and put them in plastic bags and bury them and make them find them with a metal detector. <laughs> if you did something like that today or I think in the States, Master Guns Armorer would be jumping down my throat mad at me probably. Yeah, for sure. But I guarantee you that that young Marine learned a lesson after it. <laughs> Hopefully. At least you learned how to use a metal detector better. That's that's what I was gonna say. I said that shouldn't have been too hard of a task for him, being that that's like his job. But mm-hmm. you never know; people struggle with everything. So when you got to Okinawa, there's obviously a uh, a big culture adjustment, getting settled in there. Not only being a new marine at your new unit, but like you said, being at a, a different country that's playing host. And I think. Uh, the majority of Marines that I talk to that have been out to Okinawa, the, the biggest concern that they always have is uh, Marines getting in trouble and, and messing something up with the, with the status of forces agreement. So I'm yeah, sure you guys were probably. all well-behaved. Nobody got into any trouble. The MPs were never called or anything like that. So You just have to find ways to occupy your time, you know, whether it's, you know, I think like scuba diving is a big thing a lot of guys do out there and get certified for the surf's pretty good. I think it's like top five in the world for diving too, honestly. If you're lucky enough to not get in trouble, and as the, when I was there, you had to be a non-commissioned officer to have a driver's license. 
Uh, and if you're a good enough person, you don't get in trouble and you grease the right angles, uh, you could get a driver's license. And then it was a lot more freedom. Right. Because uh, then you could go explore the island a little bit better. Otherwise, you're stuck using the buses and public transportation. And as long as they were military ran, it's easy. But if you drive the guy on a Japanese bus, obviously, you don't speak any Japanese. It's easy to get lost. Oh, I can only imagine, man. So how long did you end up staying in uh, Okinawa? About two and a half years in Okinawa, but I didn't spend that much time on island because I was going all over the place from Korea, Bangladesh, uh, Indonesia, and then two trips to Afghanistan, and then train-ups for Afghanistan to Hawaii and 29 Palms. So I don't, I don't know that I even spent that much time on island, especially consecutively. The reason why we still have people stationed in the Pacific area is to cover a large chunk of, of ground and continue to do a lot of training with not only host countries that we have, but to continue, you know, real world workups and, and stuff like that. So it's funny, you guys get a ton of uh, travel in and around it, but man, you got to get island fever after a while. Yeah, I mean, and that's why if you go out in town, it's 90% of the buildings are bars. Uh, but that's all you guys get in trouble too. You know, how guys get in trouble? I never got in any major trouble. Luckily, I've never been NJP'd. So, <laughs> well, that's good. So, talk to me through. How long were you there before you guys started gearing up for your first deployment? I think I was on, you know, tech stationed on island in about a year. And that was probably with our workup, and then the unit I was attached to was Ninth Engineer Support Battalion. We were going to go support second MEF or first MEF, I think, but a uh, reserve unit from the States got activated and needed, they needed to deploy for, to keep uh, some qualification. Basically they stole our spot. (laughs) So we were all ramped up and ready to go. And then like a couple months before we were going, they, they needed our spot. So we got bumped to another deployment, uh, which was cool because we got attached to CLB three out of Hawaii. And then in country, uh, second battalion first marines was getting pretty messed up so we did direct support for them nice. we were attached to them the entire time so first trip to afghanistan what'd you think i liked like i said i liked it because being deployed was the only time we got to actually do full-on engineer work uh and the first time we were down south in helmand mostly out of uh dwyer but most of that first deployment said we got attached to 2-1 and they needed us so we i spent out of my seven-month deployment, I think I spent five and a half months living in a truck on a road. That's nuts. And try to describe that for people. When you say we're, we're living out of a truck on a road, what, what does that all entail? Uh, like literally, so we would have, you know, we, you, at my time, we were, always using, we were already using MRAPs and then and MATVs, which is that, the newest truck that's out there. And so we would roll out with, I don't know, six to 10 trucks, a couple squads of engineers. And then we'd go out and do route route clearance all day and then route repair on where they had messed it up or we needed to widen the road or make it more suitable for our big, heavy trucks. So all the truck, all the roads out there are all dirt and, and silt. So that's like super soft powder dirt, which doesn't work good when you're trying to drive a 40 ton truck pulling a dozer. So that was our main mission. So every morning we would go out and fix whatever needed to be fixed and clear the next couple kilometers and then 
go back and park in some small patrol base. And they had like a general, like a GP tent for our guys, but we didn't have any kind of electricity. So there was no AC and there was no heater, which in the winter at night gets dang cold there. So I used to sleep inside the truck in the front next, it was my, I was the driver, my first deployment. So I was, I had a truck lit, you know, registered to me, serialized to me. And, uh, in the front is, uh, the, the rack that holds all the radios and it was perfectly level with the turret stand for the gunner. So at night when we would pull into the small bases, I would just unfurl my sleep bag across the radio stand and the turret stand. And that's where I would sleep inside my truck. Mostly so that like two or three o'clock in the morning when it was freezing outside, I could start my truck and run the heater. And it would be funny too. We'd have like four or five trucks all staged next to each other. And you would hear every, it would, it didn't fail. Every, and, and myself and two or three of the other drivers would sleep in their trucks and it would never fail. Like two, three o'clock in the morning, you'd, one start, truck would start up yeah, everybody and then would. 30 yeah. seconds later, another truck would start. Cause it's almost like, Oh, Hey, his truck's running. Yeah. I'm going to run mine too. Nobody wants to be the first, but everybody wants to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, cool. Any highlights from it? I mean, that it seems it, I always felt, uh, you know, extremely thankful that we had the route route clearance teams, but at the same time, that seemed like the worst nightmare detail to ever get on just because it seems like you're you're going out just hunting for IEDs all day long and then trying to put everything back together and while you go back and bed down and try to find somewhere warm to sleep the Taliban's out there digging away again and putting the same IEDs back in the same exact spots and it's just this vicious cycle that just kept going on and on and on yeah yeah and I think that first one our main mission was a like a 15 kilometer road. And I think we found like 187 IEDs on that road. It's a lot of metal detector time. Yeah. A particular mission we were at Fiddler's Greens, the fire base and some smart, not so smart officer decided to build a fire base in like a floodplain. So every winter they, when we got rain, it would turn into like a soupy mess. We spent like a month there trying to build that place up. And I remember they had a, one of those big gyro cameras, like a camera on a big tower. One night, I think we were standing in the COC and watching on the camera and watching these guys in place something. And they fired off some rounds from the artillery and smoked them. Except like one of the guys, we're watching him on camera, gets up and starts running away. And he fall, takes like 10 steps and falls over. And then gets up and takes like 20 or 30 more steps and falls over. So the infantry guys sent out a, you know, like a QRF to go snatched this guy up and by the time he they got to him he got into some hamlet some small little structural buildings and uh, i mean i'm hearing this second hand i mean i was watching it standing in the coc watching him run away but then second hand when the guys got back they said they they got into the structure got the family up and that you know the el the family and elder got up and they had li everyone lined up in a row in the courtyard and they're like so we just watched someone you know place an ied and we know he ran this way can you tell us who it is? And he didn't want to give them up and they're trying to negotiate with the translator. And I think one of the other infantry Marines walked behind the line of people and all the family was good, except for the one guy, like his whole backside was missing from taking the blast from the arty <laughs> round. Uh, I was pretending like he was a part of their family. Yeah. The Pashtun Wally man, their tribal code, they live by it. They're going to, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people don't understand that, 
the guest house culture and what happens when you have a guest, specifically in Afghanistan. And basically what Pashtun Wali means that anybody who is a guest traveling throughout the land, I guess you can say they're offered safe passage. So that includes water, tea, food if you need it, and a place to sleep. And you'd see it constantly. It doesn't matter what organization people are a part of, but every terrorist would take advantage of perfectly good families and take, uh, you know, use their houses for, for safe passage. The shitty thing about it is that every time you go back through and question, just like your story, they would all cover for them as well, which is just making their life even worse. So right. things that I look back on all the time is like, I wonder how many of those families, just because of, of things that maybe got a little bit out of control in the middle of the night when you're sitting there asking them, did we, did we maybe make more terrorists than we actually found out were there? But, you know, you never know what happens. Yeah, good thing that stuff's way above my pay grade. <laughs> well, good. So it sounds like a successful first appointment, huh? Yeah, yeah, I, I thought so. I don't think we had many casualties at all. I don't. There wasn't. A, I don't. We didn't lose a single engineer. I don't think so. Good. But like I said, that platoon, we had been. We basically did two workups. So that was the strongest and and most bonded platoon I ever served with. And I'm still really good friends with a lot of them. Obviously, I think 90% of them are probably out now. Right. But there's a few that are still in. And now that everybody's out, everybody's all spread across the country. But that, which is nice in itself, because then no matter where I go, there's probably a good chance I have somewhere I can stay. True. So what was it like going back home? I wasn't home for that long, so I kind of didn't. They, they tell you never to do back-to-back deployments, and that's literally what I did. I think I was home for like, uh, like I got back and did my post-deployment leave, which was like ten or fourteen days, and then, then I was around for four months, and then went and did my train up again to go again. Because they were looking for, they were short bodies or something. That- yeah, that was just about to, the reason I did that was because the battalion that i was now attached to again so i was going to deploy with ninth engineers this time instead of a clb or an infantry battalion the one we got kicked off of uh and at the time that battalion had only because of everyone transitioning and moving different units ninth only had or the engineer company only had uh i think two ncos who had ever been to afghanistan Obviously, I had a lot, a lot of leadership with a lot of combat experience, but it was all from Iraq. So myself and I think five of us engineer NCOs all extended to go on that deployment. So at least they would have some Afghanistan knowledge. So this brings us to what would that have been? 2010-ish, 2011? Yep, 2011. So yeah, because I got back from Afghanistan in spring of 2011 and then went right back out to in late fall. Uh, getting ready to deploy, did you guys, did you know what your mission was going to be? Obviously back in Hellman, where all good Marines go. Did you have right. a, a clue? You back on route route clearance, or what was the tasking going to be this time around? No, I didn't really have any idea, especially this time. This is since the first time we were just one, like a small platoon that got attached or detached from 9th and attached so this time we were an entire company of engineers. So they had a two line companies and a bridge or two line platoons and a bridge platoon. I wasn't in the bridge platoon. So those are the only guys that really knew exactly what they're going to do. Once we got there, they were going to be doing bridging. 
I was in the first platoon, the first line platoon. So we weren't sure if we were going to get route clearance or do construction mostly. And then the first, so I got injured on my second mission. So, and which really hurt my platoon because I was the construction expert or the most expert uh, experience with construction and route clearance. So my guys kind of got stuck doing D mills and, and smaller builds, uh, which they still were out there, you know, running and gunning, but instead of doing route clearance, which is what we all want to do, they got stuck doing, taking down old patrol bases and which still involves demo sometimes. (laughs) Well, talk me through it. What, uh, what ended up happening? Oh, I said, yeah. So the first mission, right after we got in country and did our whole, all right, you guys are good to go. We did our right seat, left seat deal. We did a bridge recon for like three days, no problems. And then the second we got back for a couple of days and started prepping for the next one, which is this big build that we were doing in uh, just south of the Kajaki Dam. And we took, shit, I don't know how many trucks we had, probably 16 or something like that. Because the plan was to get to Kajaki and then split up our company our platoon into two squads on the north and two on the south with a supplement from our other platoon so my three squads and then a squad from second platoon two down south and two up north the northern ones were like half a kilometer from the kajaki dam and we were maybe three or four kilometers more south and we got there it took us like two days to drive there and we got there like mid-morning and pushed all our guys out and cleared the general area and then started building the entry control point because we were building a small patrol base for a big op that the Georgians were going to come in and do. So we built the first, the ECP and the first guard post and then sent my Marines to sleep at like 2 a.m. ish and then was up at six. And then I distributed. So the, the, where they wanted this patrol base, it was like a road, on the west side and on the east side was a big like uh, half circle uh, sand dune and they wanted the patrol base like set down in the sand dune but then you need visual for your perimeter security so i put three guard posts on the ridge of the dune and then just dug them into the side of the dune that was the plan and so i sent my guys out to start working on those three guard posts and me and another squad leader worked on the third Two are being done by a bunch of the junior Marines. And then me and the other squad there are working on the third. And uh, we got the guard posts all put in the hole and set. So the window was basically level with the ground. And then uh, I was standing on the forklift of a tram to make sure the roof was square. And when I jumped off, I landed on uh, 40 pounds of homemade explosive. Luckily, only 13 of it actually detonated, though. Uh, and it was just me the tram operator and I had one security guy with me who was like a, I think it was a bulk fuel guy. He was kind of just a tag along with our uh, mission. So he was just doing dismounted security basically. And I think him and the tram guy operator got concussions, but I was the only serious major injury. So obviously a lot of this has come back to you over time. Oh, that's at, I don't, I don't even remember that. That's all just been told to me. Yep. I remember, Driving out there, I remember building the front ECP, and then I remember sending my guys to work on the other guard posts, but then after that, I don't remember anything. 
So I got hit on December 1st, and I don't remember anything until the 5th when I woke up at Walter Reed. So from what everybody's told you, you jump off the forklift, you hit the ground, no real clue of how long those explosives have been there, but ultimately very, very lucky that not all of them uh, ended up exploding. Like you said, it was, it was probably yeah. you know so the- barely a third of the actual charge that was capable that would have took out everybody. Um, oh, yeah. 40 pounds is big enough to take out a tank. Yep. Um, but as since it's homemade explosive, it's it, over time it's going to deteriorate uh, and not be as potent. So it's just like uh, what's something else that doesn't get as I can't think of an analogy, but the longer it sits, the less uh, intense the explosion is going to be. Um, so what was the what was fired. the trigger? You stre- did you step on a pressure plate or what? What initiated yeah, it, was, it? It was a pressure plate, but said like I said, it was a vehicle design pressure plate. So us walking around on foot. So we were outside the wire. So we were outside yep. in the middle of nowhere. So we we're fully geared up, and uh, us walking around, even with me weighing 170 pounds, wearing 130 pounds of gear, wasn't enough force to set it off. But me wearing all that weight, standing three feet off the ground, jumping straight down on top of it, that was what set it off. And I never, I don't know, they might have told me, but I don't remember what they said, but the, the components of the pressure plate were, maybe they didn't find them. Um, but when they did do the post-blast assessment, the, a bunch of civilians come in and do some stuff, They're like former FBI and... Yeah, they they predicted that that ID had been buried at least six months. Oh, it's incredible. Do you know how far away from the uh, the pressure point being the trigger device to the actual explosive buried was? I don't know. I it, I think stacked. It was right on top of it. So, again, jump on the pressure plate goes off, and then from there, it's a a long, long story. But you said you came through on December 5th. That's what you remember Mm -hmm. coming through. So I assume from point of injury, guys doing their best to put you together. But did the blast come straight up from the ground? uh, And that's what ended up damaging your legs and then getting your arm? Or did it come from the side? It was straight up. So my rifle was, you know, clipped to my shoulder on like a wolf hook type sling. So it kind of swung around. So when I jumped, the blast hit me from the back. So from my back going forward, up and forward. And so when I jumped down, I was holding my rifle in front of my chest. So it didn't hit my leg when I jumped down. And that's probably the only reason I'm not a quad. Yeah. So your guys did their job. They put you back together the best they could. Yep. We had either two or I think we had two or three tanks. Um, providing security for us. And one of the tank commanders jumped out and came over and put all my tourniquets on. Good. Yeah, actually, I think we had a, like I said, that young PFC private first class that was providing security for me. He tried to put my tourniquets on, but obviously he was probably a little traumatized. And so then the <laughs> staff NCO, the tank commander comes over and, cause I talked to him afterwards and he was like, oh yeah, dude, I straight up face pushed your guy out of the way. Yeah, it's a, it, you never know how people are going to react when they see, you know, not only that much trauma, but, but that much trauma to somebody that they care deeply about. And if it's the first time that anybody's ever really seen any combat at all, everybody talks about 
fight or flight, but there really is a third component to that. And a, a lot of junior guys end up freezing because regardless of the, the training that they have, it's the first time that they've ever actually done this in real life. And it's overwhelming. I think you see freeze more often than actual flight, right? Yep. So either guys do what they've been been trained to do or they just freeze. I've never seen anyone like legitimately try and run. Uh, believe me, I've but seen it. Yeah, absolutely see it <laughs> not good not a good situation either when you're like well hey and this is a lot of our uh our you know our host nation counterparts too all of a sudden you hear rounds starting to go off and you're like wait well hold on a second buddy like where are you going you're not running away oh yeah i guess i've seen them yep. yeah the some of the other nations we do 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 work with they they're more likely to run than a u.s military personnel that's right so you got medevac called in you know where uh, the first uh, trauma center they took you to was? Yeah, I went from detonation site to Leatherneck, and then from Leatherneck to Bagram, and then Bagram to Kabul, and then Kabul to Lunchstool, and then Lunchstool to the U.S. Wow. So on December 5th, when you woke up, where were you at? In Walter Reed. Ah, all the and, way back. Yeah. At that point in time, what were the uh, what was the initial assessment uh so at that point like i lost all three limbs dramatically so it was all gone right right off the get-go so then when i woke up in dc obviously every time you wake up super drugged up um they come in and explain to you hey that you know been in an accident you lost your limbs and this happened and i remember my right hand was like swollen up like i was holding a baseball in the palm of my hand and every time a nurse would tell me you lost your legs and your left arm. Like, okay, okay, I got it, I got it. But what's wrong with my hand? <laughs> uh, and luckily, like I said, I'm I'm right hand dominant. The only thing that saved my arm was my rifle, and I have zero damage to my right arm, so I didn't have any surgeries on it at all. Did you ever ask or find out where they actually amputated your limbs at? Was it at Leatherneck? Probably, but they didn't do. Like I said, it was a. They were. I, I, it wasn't like I had mangled limbs. They were like sheared off, gone. There wasn't anything left already from the blast. So it wasn't like they tried to save it or do any and then elected to go, you know, there's nothing left. Let's just continue with the amputation. It was like straight up tra trauma amputations. Like the detonation took my, took them all. So where are your legs amputated at? Uh, my left leg is like just above the knee, maybe an inch or two. In my right leg, I only have like four inches of femur, so it's super short, which that's the, you know, that's the side the blast hit me on. So it came from the back and the right and up. And so, like I said, my chest shielded my right arm, and then my right leg took the brunt of it. And then, you know, as you're jumping down, your torso kind of twists. I assume my arm was probably flailed out, and that's what took my arm. I'm guessing you had shrapnel and everything else on your, all over your ass, your back, everything yeah. like that. Basically, everything that your, your kit was not protecting you from. Mm-hmm. You're talking about your right hand being all swollen and stuff like that, but I'm I'm sure sitting on a, a sore bump for as long as you did didn't help anything either. Yeah, I got yeah. There, it took a. I have some like major shrapnel and sores on the back of both my thighs and my butt that took a long time to heal. Uh, I think it like, they took the longest. It probably took like almost a year for those to heal because you're always and then because I don't have any legs, I'm always sitting on them. I had major pressure sores and wounds on the back of my hamstrings and butt. 
And then from the initial blast, like I had, I think they took a couple feet of my lower intestine and took uh, like 10 inches of my colon. And I had a colostomy and I had a couple pulmonary embolisms. So they really? have a big zipper scar from them going in. So like, since I, my right leg was so short, that scene in the movie Black Hawk, Black Hawk Down, when that gentleman gets shot in the groin and they're in there trying to get his femoral and it keeps snapping up into his abdomen because it, it, that, that your artery is under tension, right? Right. Um, that's what happened to me. So they actually had to, they had a flight surgeon on the helicopter that did surgery to me on the helicopter as they were flying me to Leatherneck. Uh, then he cut me open and had to get my artery for my right leg from inside my abdomen cavity to, to caught, to caught, to, you know, stop off that bleeding. Um, and I was actually on another trip snowboarding this last winter and we're driving up to the resort with all the guys in the, in the, in the suburban and everyone's kind of sharing their stories. And in front of me, there's a, uh, air force active duty pararescue guy who was on the trip with us and we we're talking about stuff. And I was like, Oh yeah, I died. And he's like, like when you got hit and I'm like, yeah, I died a couple times on it. And he's like on the bird, like you died on the bird. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, dude, those were my guys. Wow. Incredible. I actually ran into one of the guys who was with the, the PJ unit that came and picked me up. Well, what was your time at Walter Reed? Like I didn't spend that much time at Walter Reed. I was just there for the uh, month. Well, initially I was there just for the month of December um, and then on Jan, I think it was actually January 1st or January 2nd, I flew out to San Diego to do all my rehab out here. But the month of December was mostly, I think I had surgery every other day for the whole month doing clean outs and making sure everything was all good to go there, which just sucked. Cause every time they go in there and cutting tissue, like I remember one night they, they have you on like a you know, I was on a Dilaudid drip, right? And you have the little button you can push yep. every time you're in pain. And no matter how many times you push the button, it's only going to give you one dose per, <laughs> you know, certain time period. And I think mine was like, I could get a dose every seven minutes. And after one surgery, the pain was bad enough. Uh, they And it records how many times you hit the button, right? I hit the button like 134 times in seven minutes. And to me the time lapse seemed fine. I was like, Oh, it's been seven minutes. I'll yeah. hit the button. Oh, it's been seven minutes. I hit the button. But apparently I was basically doing this <laughs> for seven minutes. But after that, they upped my dose and then told my parents that the amount of Dilaudid that, that, that I was giving, if they took that split it in half and go gave it to both my parents, it would stop both their hearts. I'm sure. There's like three milligrams, uh, every seven minutes or something crazy like that. Yeah. That's, that's a, a heavy dosage. For sure. And then obviously that stuff's making you hot. So yep. I remember laying in, the, you know, as far as funny stuff goes, before I joined the Marine Corps, I had really bad vision. So I was wearing contacts. Well, when I got blown up, obviously those got blown out. So I didn't, to, couldn't see anything. Uh, and then I was super high on all kinds of pain meds. And my, my Marine buddies for my first deployment, uh, a couple of them actually beat my parents to the hospital. And they all stayed with me. Uh, a lot of the time. So two of my buddies from my first uh, deployment snuck into the optometry office at about at uh, Walter Reed and stole my glasses. Cause they, cause they weren't getting them to me fast enough. <laughs> Some um, good buddies. And then, yeah. And then laying in the bed, uh, I was so hot from all the drugs and stuff they were giving me. Like the only thing I wanted, I just had a pillowcase 
uh, over my growing, and that was it. And every time someone would come in, they'd be like, "You want you want to cover up or blankets?" And I was like, "No, I'm oh, good. Like I don't yeah. care." Actually, like, well, bring you, me an extra no, fan really in, please. <laughs> yeah, they're like, you know, you're not really like totally covered. Like I don't give yeah, a crap. Like I'm you fine. guys have seen it all anyway. Yep. So, what was your reunion like with your uh, with your parents? I don't really remember too much. I, I mean, obviously they were happy to see me. I guess same thing. I talked. They said uh, when they extubated me in uh, Germany, I talked to my dad on the phone. I don't remember that, but he does obviously. Um, and then they said all the nursing staff and doctors were great. I actually have, and this goes to show, especially when they're military doctors and tattoos are a big part of the military heritage. So I had a tattoo on the inside of my left arm that said cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war. And when I got blown up, that obviously it's on the inside of my biceps and the surgeons saved it and like wrapped it when they cut it they wrapped it around and saved the whole oh, that's thing that's awesome and i said uh because that was my first trip to walter reed you see that pin coming out of my arm later on about three or four years ago i went and did another procedure called osseo integration it's like the way your prosthetics attach so a typical way is like a big molded socket that's on with suction or a pin of some kind uh, and i elected to do this at the time which the arm still is medical trial where they implant titanium rods into your bones. And then your prosthetics can just clamp directly onto that. So it eliminates the need for a socket. And that, that helps you with chafing with sores and all the other things that come with normal prosthetic wear. Correct. Yeah. I don't get any of that stuff. And then, and then as an amputee, we all always run warm because we're still running the same blood volume that a full body person is, but I have less room to circulate that blood. So I'm always hot. Uh, and then when you're in sockets, now you got the socket, especially above the knee, that socket goes all the way up to your, your hip bone. So then that little bit of skin that you do have left doesn't help you because it's not exposed to air to help you cool. Whereas now like my entire thigh is open to the air and so I'm a lot cooler. And then, yeah, there's zero chafing, zero sores, zero soreness. And then it's the instant feedback too. Like I don't have, there's no play in my socket. I don't have a socket getting loose on me and falling off or spinning on me. I, if I put my legs on, I know they're going to be on the same way every time. Do you have those uh, both on your legs as well? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which I'm sure thinking about it now, do you have better mobility with them than you did when you had your sockets? Way better. Cause now the, my prosthetic is actually attached to my femur. So if I move my femur, my prosthetic moves. Whereas before, if you're in a socket, what happens is like your femur kind of rests, you know, kind of like leans over into the side of your, your tissue. So you have to push it against the tissue and the tissue hits the inner socket and the inner socket hits the outer socket and the outer socket moves the knee. So there's so many steps there at every step. There's going to be, even if it's a 32nd of an inch of play, you're going to feel it eventually. Uh, whereas now it's, I have instant, instant feedback, instant movement. So when you got to San Diego and started your rehab, how long was it before you started working with your prosthetics and going down that route? Uh, when I was at Walter Reed originally, they told me it would take me like, uh, I think nine months before I was like up and taking steps and I did it 
or they, maybe they said 13 months. Is this, it was around, I think it was 13. So they said it would be 13 months before I was walking around in somewhat independently. Um, and I did it in seven because uh, my dad and I actually flew to Japan to see my guys come back from Afghanistan. And I was able to stand up on the flight line. I couldn't really walk because I literally just got them, like my full length. So I had a wheelchair still, but I could still stand up. So I got to stand up and stand on the flight line when my guys all got off the airplane. That was really cool. When did you first set that goal in that process? When did you know that, hey, when my guys come home, this is what I want to be able to do. I want to be able to stand up when they get off that plane. I think once I got to San Diego and they and they started my like PT regimen or explained to me what it was going to take. So once I was no longer inpatient and wasn't having surgery all the time, uh, that was my instant goal was I want to be able to stand up for when my guys get home on full length legs. Not the, So you start out, especially as a bilateral, you start out on a, like a training prosthesis. We call them like stubbies. It's just like little stilts. But when you wear them, you're, you know, you're half the height you are originally because there's no knee joint. And so I was efficient with those at the time, but I wanted to be able to stand up like full height and wear a uniform like I did. I was wore my camis and stood on the flight line, watched my guys come off. Incredible accomplishment. So uh, across this, you know, this long process, you set a ton of little micro goals that you wanted to accomplish. And I know that was your first one that you wanted to stand up to do it. What was kind of the next big step for you? After so when, after we got back from Japan, the next step was, uh, you know, ambulating at, without a wheelchair. And then after that was trying to walk without a cane. Like It must have come back in like May or June. I think it was, it was, it was, uh, it was end of May, beginning of June. I wanted to walk without a cane by the end of the year, which I was close. So in November, I still used the cane, but I think right after that, I stopped using it. Even then, I'd heard about this. Well, actually, I was looking into, because they already, only a year in, I was already dealing with socket issues and fitment issues, especially because my right limb was so short. So I was looking at, you know, transplants and all kinds of stuff they were doing out there, which none of it seemed to work, didn't seem 100% beneficial to me. So I never pulled the trigger. Um, then I heard about the osteointegration stuff. I wanted to do it, but I never heard of, at the time. Still then, if you wanted to do it, you had to go overseas, like Australia or Austria to do it. And then you're paying out of pocket for all that. Um, so it's kind of a no, no go. And then in 2000, like 17 or 18, uh, which is after I already started golfing again, I was golfing in sockets. My physical therapist husband did his osseointegration integration procedure is when I got some like direct feedback and was like, Hey, if you ever hear of another trial, put my name in, please. So let's go back to golf. When did you, uh, when did you first decide to pick it back up? So actually two guys that I grew up with, two of my really good friends, both of them were in the Marine Corps as well. And, and, uh, uh, my best friend, actually, he, when I left Afghanistan on my first deployment, his unit replaced mine. So we actually got to go on a, on a rip mission, a left seat, right seat mission together. Two guys from same hometown, which was really cool. And then in 2000, it must've been like Memorial day of 2015 or 16. 
him, Dan, and my, my another guy I grew up with, Garrett, who lives lived on a, a golf course out here in Temecula. We went out and played around on, I think it was Memorial Day, just together, the three of us. And after that, I think I hit, I didn't play for shit, but I think one of the par threes, <laughs> using a driver, uh, I, you know, put it on the green, like, you know, within six to 10 feet and actually made birdie. And so that kind of got me hooked in again, which nowadays I like, look, I have that video somewhere and I got the <laughs> long hair and, you know, being lazy, being out of the military. And I, you know, I laugh at myself because I bet you it's like, it's maybe like 140 yard par three or something like that. And I hit driver and barely made it. And nowadays, like I'm hitting a seven iron for that. You talked about growing up playing golf, but when you pick it, back up and obviously a, a lot everything that you know about golf basically and, and the golf swing that you used to have is different mm-hmm. how did you get so proficient swinging with with one arm i think a big part of it is just athleticism growing up playing so many sports and just having that hand-eye coordination because i didn't i don't it's and i i wish it wasn't as hard it honestly there's only it's hard to find an instructor, even the instructors who have dealt with amputees, who can understand my swing. Everyone's always trying to give pointers that they would give to somebody with full full limb usage. And I I don't like using the word can't, you know, and everyone always says, well, you can do anything you want. But like there are certain things that I literally yeah. can't do anymore. Like, like thank, I, thank you for the motivational talk. I appreciate that. But listen, my my range of motion is a lot different than any of you guys. So pipe down yeah, for a second. Balance and alignment is usually more what they are thinking of. Or like I said, there's the mechanics of my swing aren't so abnormal. Like it's hard for them to grasp how to help. Like uh, I remember I was in Orlando just not too long ago and we're in the bunkers trying to practice bunker stuff and i'm i have my feet super wide pointed in some weird direction and the guy's trying to tell me like well you just gotta thump the head through the through the sand and i'm like i can't do that man oh that's what i was gonna say too it's some of those highly motivational people are like you can do anything that's why i was telling them like really i can jump explain to me how <laughs> i can jump like it's impossible i can't do it i'll never jump you never know. Uh, we'll okay get you. We'll, we'll get you some rockets on those prosthetics one of these days, right? I'm okay with that. It's fine. So now, when it transitions to the golf, you know, situation, there are certain things that I just can't do. Like if I have my feet too wide, then I'm I have no, you know, have no. So, but there's there have been a few that have kind of grasped it and helped on certain things. Don Moyer with the On Course Foundation yep. actually give me like bunkers, for example. So like for me, where a regular person is trying to kind of like use the bounce of the club and thump it through the grass, like or the grass through the sand, I have to be like super wristy because if I try and hit a traditional bunker shot, I pick the ball clean every time and it sails over the green. So I kind of have to be very hingy with my wrist. That's something new that he's helping with. And then I told you earlier, I was struggling getting any altitude out of my driver and he kind of found some, a small thing that that i could change in my takeaway which seems to have helped but on a regular just come across any teaching pro they want to you know you need to rotate your hips and turn your shoulders and move this and do that and your foot's pointed the wrong way and you got to open up your foot and you got to move this and you got to do these things and i'm and it's, i guys like and that's i've struggled to i'd love to find a coach that i could work with 
on a weekly basis. I just haven't found someone who can really get the mechanics of my swing yet. So maybe someone will pop out of somewhere eventually. Because yeah. I, I would love, like, I, I'm okay with where my game's at. I think a lot of people watching my game probably think it's fantastic. But because of the mindset I've had my whole life and just wanting to grind and be the best and being as I was such a low handicapper before I got hurt, like I'd love to be in the single digits again, but to be single digit, I'm I need I need some I need a little bit more. I've kind of got to the peak point where I can on my own. I need uh, someone to kind of give me some tips to get down to that elite level kind of. And I just need to find the right person. Like I said, I've come across a few who have given me little tiny stuff. I just want to find someone I can work with on a regular basis because I know if I do, I can easily get back down to the goal that I'd like to reach. Like I said, my main goal, really, and it doesn't sound too far-fetched, is I'd just like to be single digits again. So even 9.9 is okay with me. Absolutely. No, it, there's there's somebody out there for everyone, that's for sure. Like you said, you just got to find the right person that, that knows what's going on and and realistically will listen to you. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the number one thing is, like, when you're talking about your stance and alignment and everything else, like, you don't need that for the swing. You need that to be, to have your base comfortable so you can actually make a swing. Yeah, and, and that's That means nothing about your alignment and stuff. Yeah, exactly. So, I, that's where the, the hardest struggle is on the course is I'll have my feet set up for the most stable position, and it'll be nowhere near, like, my alignment will be nowhere near I, traditional alignment nowhere near where I should be or want to hit the ball, especially a ball, like a ball below my feet. That's definitely the hardest. Whenever someone asks me, like, what's the toughest part of your game? That's it. So I always tell them, next time you're on the driving range, lock your knees and stand with, and pick your toes off the ground and now swing the club. <laughs> that's basically what it's like when I'm trying to hit below my feet. I know. It's so impressive. But I agree with you. there's a lot more gas still left in that tank, a lot more than you can do. Oh yeah. And like Don and I kind of broached that subject just a lot, not too long ago. And he asked me, he's like, you know, if you weren't say you were, you know, a TBI or maybe a spinal, like a much less injury, right? Like some of the other guys in the, on, in the on-course foundation, like obviously they deserve to be there and they are injured, but they still have full use of all four of their limbs. He's like, if you were that way, where do you think you would be handicap wise? And I was like, oh, I'd probably be where I used to be, you know, like low single digits, one, two. And he's like, no, dude, you'd be a plus. He's probably he's right. Like, yeah, you, I Absolutely. Yeah, Don, which was, is a confidence booster. He's like, no, 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 man, you'd be like a plus one. Yeah. Which is, like I said, the grind, the mental attitude that I put into the game and just doing stuff over and like before last year's Simpson Cup, I think I would, I hit, I didn't even, it's probably gone down a little now because I have some other stuff going with work and employment, but I used to hit a hundred balls a day, seven days a week. Got a little simulator in the garage and I, I would, you know, can't sleep at 2 a.m. and I'd go up and hit 50 balls. <laughs> when you decided to pick back, you know, pick golf back up again is because you wanted to hang out with your buddies and it was something, you know, a shared passion that you had. But over and time my time you know yeah it it sounds too like over time it it became you know a good release for you not only for physical activity but really probably a lot of it mental and became more therapeutic than anything else definitely you know 
you know, growing up in a small farm town and always being outdoors, like I don't, that's my, I like to be outdoors instead of being stuck inside. So being able to be outside and, and then San Diego doesn't hurt since I can play golf year round out here. I think we get rain like five days a year, every five years. So I can pretty much play all the time, which is speaking of the rain. It's funny when, when we do get the tiniest little bit of drizzle or rain, all of a sudden, all the courses are like car paths only, or they're not <laughs> letting you out. And then you go play somewhere on the East coast, like Florida or New York or North Carolina. And it's, you got four inches of rain coming down and there's still people out there whacking the ball around, which I'm guilty of that too. I've definitely done that in New York <laughs> and Michigan and played where, or even last year, our practice round at the Simpson cup last year, there was guys, I mean, uh, Steve O I remember driving by Steve O and he's standing at the snack shack, uh, right around the turn. And all of us are, in our full rain gear and Steve-O standing there like, bro, I look like I just jumped in the harbor. <laughs> Soaked to the bone. Yeah, there's no quit. No quit in the group of you guys, that's for sure. So yeah. when did you find out about Encores? The 2016 time frame. No, yeah. About 2016, 17, somewhere in there. Jesse Williamson was uh, getting ready to go move out to Tucson to help build the U of A's golf program. And uh, I was looking at going out there to join them as well. And then unfortunately all the COVID junk happened, but uh, we, Sean and Jesse and I uh, all went out to Tucson and golfed a couple of times out there. And that was my first introduction, I think to the on course. And I met meeting Sean Whitmore. Um, And then unfortunately for me, I was sitting in a hospital at doing all my osteointegration surgery and uh, Jesse's sending me photos from St. Andrews when they played in 2019. So. <laughs> no, I know he's a really good buddy of yours, but it, it's good to hear that he's the one that, that drug you into the foundation. And I think for a lot of people, there's confusion because they see the Simpsons Cup and then they see the On Course Foundation. And I, I guess if you could kind of give a brief overview of what the foundation is and then what the kind of qualifications and requirements are in order to get on the Simpson Cup team. Yeah, so the Simpson Cup literally is a fundraiser for the Encores Foundation. That's its main purpose. Obviously, it's a fun competition, but really as far as the leadership goes, it's a fundraiser. And the reason is to fund programs throughout the year, which are usually anywhere from one one day to seven day clinics at exclusive golf courses around the country where the on-course staff comes in and either gives lessons or they make a deal with the local country club to have their pros come in and give clinics and lessons. And then we also have a programs director that gets guys involved in employment in the golfing industry. So that's really the main goal of on-course foundation is to get veterans involved in the golfing industry, whether it's to do with uh, employment or just getting around guys to enjoy that camaraderie and go out and have a couple beers in moderation and enjoy time with guys who understand what you've been through. And then as far as the Simpson cup goes to qualify, there's two main rules and then a third. So ideally they like to have you as one, you have to be a member of the on course foundation uh, and to be a member, you need to be a disabled veteran. 
and with a rating, I believe. I don't think it's any particular number. I just think it's any kind of rating. And then to participate in the Simpson Cup, you have to have to participated in at least one to three events throughout the year um, that the Encores has sponsored, whether it be a you know a three day or a five day or a fundraiser at some other golf course or a working opportunity, whether you be you know, um, you know pole bearing for a PGA event. Or I know we've had opportunities to work security at Augusta for the Masters through the Encores Foundation. So once you participated in one to three events per year, that makes you eligible to try and qualify. And then usually there's anywhere from two to four qualifiers a year. This year, I believe there was three. There was one at Rondecoy in Rochester, and then Kernwood Country Club in uh, Salem, and then uh, there was another third this year in Virginia. I can't remember the club. And then they usually take, you know, two or three of the top qualifiers. And it's all, uh, it's usually a two-day Stableford, one or two-day Stableford tournament. And the biggest key is really just shoot your handicap, right? If you shoot your handicap, you're going to rack up the points and make the team. So they take top two or three for a qualifier. And then I think there's a, uh, John Simpson has his founder's pick. And then just like a traditional Ryder Cup, you know, team, the captain, I think gets four or five picks somewhere in that range. This year's playing in the Simpsons Cup is going to be at the Baltusrol Country Club. And you guys were, the U.S. team was victorious last year out at the Creek on Long Island. Brought the overall record to five wins for the U.S., four for the team from England and the United Kingdom. What are you looking forward to most about this year? I'm, so... When we do the, it's a, you have the first day is a four ball and the second day is singles. And since there's 13 guys on a team, obviously there's one guy, odd guy out for the four ball match. Um, And last year, unfortunately, it was kind of my turn. So this year I'm looking forward to playing in the four ball match because that's a lot of fun. You got your partner to bounce off, you know, the stress isn't a hundred percent on you. And when we just did the team buildup a couple weeks ago, at uh, Rochester, Arondecoy Country Club. Got to play with a couple of the new members who had never made the team before. And a couple of them, at least and one of them, had never really played competitive golf before, so it was kind of teaching him the strategy of what, what match play is. And him and I vibed together really good. I thought we had a lot of fun. So I even, we when we finished our round, we were even come up to Marty Caraway, the team captain this year, and was like, bro, you got to make us four ball partners. That was we played well together. It was a lot of fun. We had a blast. So we'll see how that turns out. And really, so I'm looking forward to being able to play in both the four ball and the singles and hopefully bring home two points for my side. Well, I'm excited. I think uh, you guys have a strong team this year. couple of repeat performers, but I know Marty, uh, he's going to be chasing that victory again. So I think it's one of those things, too. What I saw last year at the Creek is that, like, if anybody's interested in coming out and seeing really good golf, first and foremost, but, like, want you want to be completely impressed by people who, who have some sort of disability that makes them play and enjoy golf, maybe a little bit different than they do, come and check it out because it truly is impressive from people who have any sort of hidden disabilities whether that's ptsd or tbis or anything like that all the way from single amputees one of our guys got a a bullet in his neck right it's it's phenomenal it's basically 
any injury that you could possibly think of somebody, ha- a veteran having, you're going to see it out there all the way up to, well, really all the way up to you. So it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's so, so impressive, but Hey, Nick, I appreciate it, man. I appreciate you taking the time. I look forward to seeing you in a couple days up in, in New Jersey. Sweet. And you know, it's going to be another, another fun week. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. And I think the weather's going to be pretty good. So hopefully we don't get rained on again this year. <laughs> well, perfect. Until then, buddy, take care. And if, uh, if you ever need anything, please reach out. But I know this too, as a, uh, a Mr. Moss sponsored athlete, and I know you got a couple other companies and, and you know, that, that help you along the way. Is there anybody be, before we close out of this, that you want to give a shout out to, or, or a thank you or, or anything else like that? Yeah, it'd be, yeah, that, that would be the biggest, it'd be, it'd be, you know, uh, Mason and Matt with, uh, Mr. Ma and then, uh, Kurt Collier with, uh, Integrum, which is the prosthetic company that I work with. And then really my dad, you know, he's a huge support system for me. Uh, and it's, uh, bummer. He can't make the trip out. It's a little too far. Um, but he holds down the home front for me and watches the dogs and, He's, he's my biggest supporter for sure. Absolutely. Well, buddy, get some good practice in. All right, bud. Sounds good. <laughs>